Galatians. We're continuing <clears throat> our study of uh, Galatians 3, and uh, this sermon builds on the one that I preached this morning. <clears throat> so this morning, uh, or this, this afternoon rather, uh, Verses 15 through 18 uh, are the text that we will be looking at and that I will, uh, the sermon is based on. But I will um, back up again to verse 6, <clears throat> as I uh, read this morning from there. Listen to the word of the Lord. Um, listen carefully as I read. <clears throat> Excuse me. And even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. A promise, rather. But God has granted it granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word expounded. Uh, Lord, we want to hear not from me, um, I'm a mere man and a sinful one at that. But Lord, we want to hear 
from you, Lord Jesus. Would you please speak through me? Would you please uh, prevent me from saying anything that would be contrary to uh, the right understanding of this passage? And would you please help us all to benefit from this, drawing us closer to your holy heart as we ponder these wonderful truths tonight. And we ask this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, children. Bebo? Tegan? Um, Have you ever made a promise to somebody? Ever made a promise where you said, I promise to and promise to do something? Maybe you made a promise to your mommy or your daddy or maybe even one another uh, sometime. Um, for example, just as a couple of examples of to- uh, uh, promises you might have made, perhaps you promised to, um, to uh, you, your mom that you would pick up your toys that you left uh, in your room. Maybe you did that one time. Yes, I promise I'll do that in just a minute, Mommy, as soon as I go use the restroom or whatever. Or maybe you s- promised somebody that you would uh, you'd be all ready for bed at a certain time. Maybe that. I promise I'll be ready for bed by 7 o'clock, whatever, whatever it is. When you make a promise, <clears throat> you know, Christians, especially, everybody's supposed to do this, but Christians especially, when we make promises, we are supposed to always keep our promises. It's very serious. God takes that very seriously when we make a promise. He listens and hears those promises that we make. And because uh, of this, Christians can usually be trusted to keep their promises, usually. But you know what? God can be trusted even more so. In fact, he can always be trusted to keep his promises. Because unlike us, we are sinners, and so we sometimes don't follow through with what we say we're going to do. God always, always follows through with what he says, what he promises he's going to do. And this passage teaches us that point, among others. So you need to listen uh, to the promise that God made uh, to Abraham uh, and claim that promise for yourself as well. Just a reminder, this passage is based is, is, uh, flows out of what we uh, read this morning. I'll just remind you of what justification is, uh, because it, is, it bears on the uh, application of the passage, the text that we're looking at this evening. Justification, the uh, framers of the Westminster uh, Standards defined it as an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So it's uh, fundamentally two things, pardon of sin and a declaration of righteousness based on the righteousness of Jesus. Um, that is given to us or credited to us or imputed to us. And God's justification of the elect sinner is what enables we as sinners who are justified to be reconciled to God and to be right with God in this life and, of course, in the next life as well. Um, And this justification of the sinner uh, is the inheritance that uh, Paul is referring to in verse uh, 18, when he says, for the inheritance is, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but it's not based on law, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. 
God justified Abraham based on his belief in God's promise to our uh, spiritual forefather. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, the Shorter Catechism that I just quoted for you a moment ago, it's Shorter Catechism 33, I believe, um, it says that justification is received by faith alone. By faith alone. We talked about that this morning. It is experienced by a person only when that sinner places his trust solely in God's promise to forgive and save him through Jesus Christ and what Jesus did for us. A person who attempts to obey God's law and do good, uh, or a person rather who attempts to obey God's law and do good in order to be justified is not going to be justified. Uh, law-keeping plays no part whatsoever in our being justified. Now, it plays a central role in our being sanctified. And sanctification is referred to in a couple of places in Scripture, one over in Second uh, uh, Thessalonians and another one in, I saw it just uh, the other day, I think Romans. No, anyway, wherever it is, a couple of places. There, sanctification is also referred to as salvation. Um but we're talking about justification when we're speaking of at this point in time. And again, a person who is justified is always going to be sanctified, is always going to be glorified. But it is by faith alone. And even sanctification is as we look to God in faith for the grace to grow in holiness. So it's all by faith. Uh, law-keeping plays no part in our justification. And that is a point that Paul hammered home uh, in the text that we looked at this morning. And he continues to do that in this passage, verses 15 through 18. That leads me to three points that we're going to derive, uh, that are found, I should say. I'm not going to derive them. They're here in this text, and they are these. First, that God justifies sinners by faith alone is evident from the fact that justification is based on a promise. Secondly, that God justifies sinners by faith alone is evident from the fact that the covenants, that covenants once ratified cannot be set aside. And then finally, that God justifies sinners by faith alone is evident from the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was ultimately made with Christ. So first, the justification that God justifies sinners by faith alone is evident from the fact that justification is based on a promise. Verse 18 made that point. I won't reread it because I just read it a moment ago. But it is, it is not based upon obedience to God's law. As, as important as obedience to God's law is, being justified is utterly unrelated to law-keeping by the justified individual. We hear, we first hear of God's willingness and intention to justify sinners by faith way back in Genesis 15. Now it's talked about there for the first time, but that doesn't mean it didn't apply all the way back to the garden. It did. But it's mentioned in the Abrahamic administration of the covenant of grace, uh, and there for the first time. Um, and it happens, uh, it was, um, it was, Formally ratified, that Abrahamic covenant, it was mentioned earlier, but it was formally ratified in Genesis 15. 
And Paul here in our text, uh, or in our passage, he quotes, um, actually back in, um, excuse me, back in verse 6, back in verse 6 of this chapter, he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, when he says, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a, a virtual quote from Genesis 15, 6. Um, and it shows us uh, that the doctrine of justification by faith comes directly from um, and even precedes God's ab- covenant with Abraham. Faith is the instrument. Uh, it, is the, the, uh, it is the conduit by which we receive the grace of God in Christ. It always has uh, and it always will be ever since the fall. The Abrahamic covenant uh, was a covenant based upon that that covenant that is uh, whose blessings are received by faith was based upon a promise, namely God's promise that He made to Abraham that He and all of His spiritual descendants would inherit eternal life in heaven. You go say, wait a minute, I don't I don't remember those words from Genesis. Okay, those words are not in Genesis specifically, but the, uh, the, uh, the promise of land and seed is what the, the, the land and the seed pointed forward to heaven, the land pointed to heaven, and the seed to those who would receive heaven. And so, uh, it, uh, the, uh, the promise of eternal life was to Abraham's, uh, descendants, um, in the inheritance of the physical land by those descendants, by the physical descendants. And the promise was uh, uh, t- uh, typified um, in, those, in those physical promises and spiritual blessings were typified in those uh, inheritance of the land by a biological people. I hope I made that. That was rather confusing to me, so I hope you picked it up. Anyway, this divine promise would be... Uh, uh, realized in one and only way. One and only one way would the promise be realized to Abraham and all of his spiritual descendants. And that is, the promise would be realized as a result of God's decision to forgive and accept as righteous, in other words, to justify, every imitator of Abraham. Every person who imitated Abraham specifically in Abraham's believing the promises of God. Abraham believed God and it was. Reckoned to him, uh, his belief in God's promise of a Savior in Jesus was reckoned to him as righteousness. God saw him as righteous because he put his trust in the Messiah that God had promised to give the seed of the woman. Abraham trusted in that promise that God had made to him of forgiveness and eternal life through the covenant mediator that God himself would raise up from among his own, Abraham's own, and Isaac's and Jacob's descendants. And it was only to that then-future covenant mediator that Abraham looked for his right standing before God in this life and in the next. It was only to Christ. That's it. Now, since God's, uh, since Abraham was trusting in God's promise to justify him, 
and ultimately to save him, he could not have been trusting in his obedience to the law. Which, by the way, was not in stone yet, but it was in his heart. The moral law was written in his heart. But he was not justified by any obedience to that moral law that was written in his heart. Because God justifies by faith. And those are two mutually exclusive principles. They're mutually exclusive. Which is why I say you can't add anything to Jesus, faith in Jesus, without losing Jesus. So, that God justifies sinners by faith alone is evident from the fact that justification is based on a promise, God's promise. Secondly, it is evident from the fact that covenants, once ratified, cannot be set aside. This is a principle that is found among in human covenants as well as uh, the divine covenant that we're going to talk about in a minute. But it's evident in human covenants. Um, and this he, he mentions that in verse 15. Brethren, I, I speak in terms of human relations. So he's talking about human relations. He says, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. The Greek word for covenant, is diatheke. Paul uses it here. And diatheke can have a couple of different meanings. It can mean, a very have a very specific meaning. It can mean, very specifically, a covenant, or it can mean a will or a testament. It can be either one. But it can also mean more generally, so that would be a very specific meaning, but it can also mean something, have a more general meaning, which it does here, of a legal arrangement of some sort. And for reasons that, um, and, and by the way, both a covenant and a will are a legal arrangement. They're both legal arrangements. Uh, but for reasons, again, that are more than I want to get into here in this sermon and would probably bore you, uh, legal arrangement is probably the safest way to, uh, to translate uh, the word diatheke in verse 15 there, although most, most uh, translations don't translate it legal arrangement. But it's broader than the concept of covenant right there in verse 15 at least. So, the, the point, here's the point by uh, what, what's going on there in verse 15. Paul is saying there, it's very clear, he's saying, in human affairs, once any legal arrangement has been formally ratified, it cannot be set aside or modified in any way, at least not legitimately. That being the case, he says, how much more and this is the point I was making to the children, how much more does the same principle apply in legal arrangements, such as covenants, that God himself has brought about or imposed upon his people? By the way, God's imposition there is not a burden, but it is indeed an imposition. He decides this is how it's going to be. It's not a mutually agreed upon thing between us and God. Yes, between between men, it is. Between us and God, he says this is the way it's going to be, and we say, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. But it's not a burden. It's a beautiful thing. So it is God is always going to, uh, it it is not going to change his, his arrangement that he has made, which here in the case of God and us is a covenant. He's not going to change it. Not only because of its 
it's a legal arrangement, and you don't change legal arrangements once made, but much more importantly, because it is the unchanging God of the Bible who decides upon its terms. This is why, by the way, one of the arguments why uh, it, it why well, it's an argument for covenant uh, uh, for covenant baptism, and for re, for the fact that covenant children still need the sign of the covenant in the New Testament age, as well as in the Mosaic economy and the Abrahamic economy, because children were included there. They did receive the sign. They were parties to that covenant. And they're still parties to this covenant. Because God doesn't change. He made an arrangement, and it's done. It's just a matter of where it is in the history of uh, of redemption as to what, what administration of that, of that arrangement we're under. And now we're in the fullest expression of it, the new covenant. That was an aside. At any rate, um, what this means is, this, uh, uh, is that, again, God's gracious covenant with Abraham has never been modified or set aside. Because that arrangement was uh, a, an expression of the previous arrangement that was made in the garden in Genesis 3.15. But the, but the focus here is on the Abrahamic covenant. And it was never set aside. It was not set aside or altered when Jacob, uh, uh, Abraham's grandson, uh, who was the father of Israel, was not set aside when Jacob stole the paternal blessing that rightly belonged to his brother Esau. It wasn't modified then. It was not set aside or altered when Judah, the son of Jacob, through whom the Messiah was destined to come, defiled his daughter-in-law Tamar wasn't set aside by that uh, 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 sin. It was not set aside or altered when Abraham's descendants were enslaved in Egypt. That didn't change things. And it certainly wasn't altered or set aside when the moral law was set in stone for the people of God on Mount Sinai. And that very point is made in verse 17. Look with me. What I am saying is this. So here's one of Paul's principal points. Uh, this is his principal point in this section. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. In other words, it doesn't invalidate the Abrahamic covenant. That continues in force. Even while the uh, Mosaic administration, the law, as it's called here by Paul, continues, uh, is, 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 um, uh, if you, yeah. As long as that arrangement, uh, uh, that, that is added, if you will, to the Mosaic arrangement. That's what I'm trying to, uh, to the Abrahamic arrangement, rather. That's what I'm trying to get at. So, the Abrahamic covenant was still in force when the law was given. Um, it uh, continued in force because it was based on, as was the Mosaic Covenant, based on and an outgrowth of the original expression of the covenant back in Genesis 3.15 in the garden just after the fall. By the way, and this is an important aside, I mean an aside, but it's an important aside, and I kind of alluded to it a moment ago, but the moral law, the moral law which is written on our hearts, uh, didn't first come into existence when God gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Some people mistakenly believe that. That is not true. The moral law was written on the heart of Adam, 
Eve and everybody since then. Uh, it was merely written down, or a better word might be codified, when at Sinai. That's the only difference. You could visibly read it at Sinai. And that's very, very important that we understand that. So, the point that Paul is making, uh, uh, particularly in verses 15 and 17, is uh, to his hearers, is that since, as we've already learned, the Abrahamic covenant was essentially a promise uh, made by God to justify and give eternal life to any sinner who trusted solely in the promised mediator that Abraham was trusting in, and since the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is still in effect, it was uh, in, uh, in uh, Moses' day, uh, was throughout Israel's history, it was still in effect, and it still is in effect in the New Testament age. Just it's expressed as the new covenant. Now, and since that is all true, um, God still justifies and saves sinners by faith alone. Because it's virtually the same uh, covenant as the Abrahamic covenant, which was by faith alone. That leads me to the third point. So the, we've seen that God justifies sinners by faith alone is evident from the fact that um, uh, justification is based on a promise. We've seen that it is evident uh, from the fact that covenants, once ratified, cannot be set aside. And it is also finally seen in the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was ultimately made with Jesus Christ. Verse 16, he makes that very point. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds, as to many, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. This is, this is the Westminster framers of, of, of the Westminster uh, forefathers who wrote our standards did a brilliant job of of grasping what the Bible teaches here. When it defines in the larger catechism, the, uh, it says, with whom was the covenant made? Uh, with whom was the covenant of grace made? And the answer is, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. It's ultimately made with Christ, and they base that on that verse that I just read to you, verse 16. But we, it's made with us because we're in Christ. And how are we in Christ? By faith. By faith. So the Abrahamic covenant, as well as the Mosaic covenant, as well as the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, all made ultimately with Christ. When did the Lord Jesus live? Well, he lived over 1,400 years after the codification of the moral law by God at Sinai. 1,400 years later. So how could God's gracious covenant with Abraham, which was made before Sinai, 600 years before Sinai, how could God's gracious covenant with Abraham possibly have been abrogated by the giving of the Ten Commandments? And the answer is it couldn't have. It was made with Christ. The Abrahamic covenant was. 
It was made with Christ by the Father. It's not going to be abrogated when one person of the Trinity makes the promise or uh, makes a covenant with another person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ hadn't even been born when Moses took possession of those two tablets. And yet God the Son existed before he took possession of those tablets. In eternity past before. And he was the one with whom the covenant was ultimately made. The Abrahamic covenant had had to have, excuse me, had to have remained in force after the giving of the Ten Commandments, in anticipation of Jesus' arrival on the world stage some 1,400 years later. And even with the coming of Christ, Jesus, and after his death and resurrection and ascension, it wasn't set aside. Rather, it was made effectual by the historic work of Jesus, cross work of Jesus, which included his, his obedience uh, in life as well as unto death and his resurrection and ascension. It was made effectual. The, that covenant reached its fruition and we now call it the new covenant. It was fulfilled, you see. Finally, in time and space. Even though it was in effect for uh, believers in the Old Testament back in their day. Because Jesus was the party the other party. And that covenant was all about, and every covenant has been all about God's justification and blessing of sinners by faith alone in Abraham's seed, ultimate seed alone. Are you trusting in the seed of Abraham? Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your forgiveness by God and your acceptance with God and your reconciliation to God? I trust all of you are. Children, children, I want you to pay attention for a moment. It's really important that you understand that Jesus is your only hope. It's your only hope of having God as your friend rather than your enemy. It's my only hope. It's your parents' only hope. It's every person's only hope is, is Him. So you need to trust in Jesus. Even at your young age, you can understand that Jesus is the only one who can forgive you of your sin because you're a sinner, just like Pastor Mark is a sinner. I'm probably a bigger sinner than you are. But we're all sinners. And one sin will land us in hell forever. And only Jesus, only by believing and trusting in Jesus alone, Can we be forgiven? Um, And this passage once again makes that point uh, to all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that ultimately, Lord, we are in the covenant of grace because Jesus is the one, Father, with whom you made that covenant. And we thank you that therefore it is a sure, um, it's, it's, uh, its blessings surely belong to us as we are in Christ spiritually by faith. We thank you that even that faith itself is something that you must give us. We cannot 
as sinners, we cannot manufacture faith in or desire for Jesus. Only you could do that, and you did that to each of us who are believers. If, Lord, there is anybody here tonight, and it's a small group of us, but if there's anybody, man, woman, or child, who has never understood that before now, would you please grant eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond in faith by trusting in Jesus alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.